Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. Welcome to Episode 1. Today, we're talking to Dr. David Nowell, a clinical neuropsychologist, international speaker, and ADHD specialist. His focus is motivation, attention, and fully engaged living, and he can be found at drnowell.com. We'll be discussing a 10-second grocery store description of ADHD, reinforcing the behavior you want, and mindfulness. All right, let's get rolling. David, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Good morning. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm excited about your podcast. We haven't spoken in probably a year or so, I would guess. So it's nice to reconnect. Yes, it is. It always is. We always have great conversations and spark off each other. Yeah. So what I'm hoping to do with this episode is to help my listeners get an idea of what ADHD is sort of in the big picture. Okay. So if you could give us even just a 10 second description of ADHD and we'll go from there, we'll kind of see where it leads. All right. So if someone stopped me in the grocery store and said, well, where were you today? And I said, well, I was at an ADHD workshop. And he said, oh, ADHD, what's that? It sounds like he's interested, but not that interested. So <laughs> the 10-second explanation might be that ADHD is a brain-based condition that makes it difficult to focus, to attend, to filter out sensory input, to prioritize, and to self-regulate. We yep. know that if someone's come to this podcast, yes. they're interested. So let's go into that a little bit more and maybe start with the brain-based side of it because that's sort of where the validity comes from, right? There's a lot of people out there who say ADHD doesn't exist, but we know that it does. You mentioned that there are some folks who believe it doesn't exist. I mean, that's, that's funny to you and I, but there was a popular book just a year or two ago, I believe by a neurologist called There's No Such Thing as ADHD or whatever. And I'm not sure if he was just trolling or if he was serious, but let's take him at his word. And I think that it is understandable. If you read the symptoms, for example, of uh, schizophrenia, you would say, well, those are unusual experiences and not a lot of people have those experiences. But if you read the symptoms of ADHD, you might say, well, that's the central spiritual problem of being a human being. And this universe of potentially wonderful opportunities and commitments and activities and relationships, which will I select for myself? And then having so selected, how do I break that goal down into its steps and sub-steps? then how do I look at those sort of in my head and sequence those steps? This one first, this one last, these in the middle. And then having sequenced those steps, how do I perform those steps one after the other? If it takes hours or days or weeks doing all the steps, the fun ones, the boring ones, the hard ones, that's sort of the challenge for ADHD. And in a lot of ways, it's the challenge for any of us. So the difference is that ADHD is all of the symptoms that you would see on a checklist, but to a greater extent than your same age peers, and with significant functional impairment. One of, the, one of the things I like to do when I bump into people in the grocery store and talk to them about ADHD. Yeah, <laughs> what you do? All the time. Yeah. Um, is I often equate it to asthma. Yes. Where everybody has trouble breathing at times. You're standing in front of a fire for too long. You get some smoke in your lungs. You're out running. Everybody yep. gets winded, right? Yes. But people with asthma in those situations are considerably worse off. Because they could literally die if they've been running and then so walk into yes. a smoke-filled room. Yes. And so people with ADHD are a lot like people with asthma, where environmental factors are going to affect them more than it's going to affect someone who's neurotypical. That's a great analogy because I'm thinking to myself, I've had the experience of being wheezy. Maybe it's cold and I've been running or something. And to think that that's what someone with asthma experiences more severe, more frequently, that's a great model. Most of us have had the experience of being distracted and unfocused and procrastinating, but then the difference is severity and functional impairment. So Rebecca is a 12-year-old girl who's excited about making her bat mitzvah. Well, she's excited about the party. About two weeks into Hebrew school, the rabbi calls the family and says, Becky is a mess. She's distractible, unfocused. She procrastinates. She bothers the other students. She doesn't do her homework. She looks out the window. I think you should have her screened for ADD. 
But Becky does okay at lacrosse and Girl Scouts. She does okay at other kids' houses. She's doing okay at school and at home. So we would probably say that Rebecca does not have the brain-based condition we call ADHD because if you truly have ADHD, it should show up in multiple settings. For kids, that would be school and or soccer and home and or other kids' houses and or getting ready in the morning and or camp. For adults, that might be the backseat of your car, your credit score, your relationship history, your job history, the spare bedroom you call the craft room. I often at a workshop say, raise your hand if you've ever taken an extension on your taxes in April, and a few brave hands will go up. But my guess is there's a certain number of extensions that would be average for an American adult, and perhaps adults with ADHD will be more likely to have done that, waited to the last minute. And so multiple settings could be finances, relationships, jobs, and so forth. If you truly have a a brain-based condition, it's going to show up in multiple settings. If you just have trouble breathing around a campfire, that's probably not asthma. So same thing for right. Rebecca. So um, you asked about the brain basis. There are at least three genes which we know contribute to the ADHD phenotype, which means that behavioral presentation that we call ADHD. There are at least three genes. Interestingly, one of those genes is a variant that, if, if you're interested and you want to Google this, it's called the wanderlust gene. It's a gene which exists, it's a variant which exists to a variable extent across the population. So there are groups of people in Africa that haven't moved very far across history. And there are groups of, in Africa who have moved quite far across the continent. Those populations are more likely to have the variant. And, the ones that have moved a lot? Yeah. And if you look at the planet, the highest pop, the, the, the population with the highest variant is actually in South America. So these are humans which we believe have moved the furthest. They started in what is now perhaps Siberia and went across what is now Alaska, U.S. And so you have to wonder across human history, who are the people that just kept moving? I've often wondered this about Pacific Islands. Like if I'm on Fiji, sort of drinking something out of a coconut, enjoying the always perfect weather, and somebody said, hey, let's get in a boat and make a dangerous trip to find another super awesome island. I'd be like, I'm all set. Who are these people <laughs> who just keep going? So wanderlust or entrepreneurial spirit or adventure, like always seeking to find that edge, that exists uh, to a greater extent in folks with ADHD. And there's a couple of other genes that contribute to the phenotype. So it's, it's one of the more heritable conditions in our DSM, the manual that psychologists and uh, mental health clinicians use to sort of um, offer a diagnostic impression. ADHD is one of the more heritable conditions. In fact, if I could only ask one question about your prenatal or perinatal risk, it wouldn't be low birth weight. It wouldn't be prenatal exposure to cigarettes. Those are important. It would actually be that either of your parents have the condition. Well, I know I had the first two and I'm pretty sure my mom had ADHD. Wow. <laughs> so got it going and coming. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yep. And I was a preemie too. So throw that in oh, for a good well, mix. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. low, yeah. Low birth weight is, is another just statistical risk factor, you know, at, at the group level. I still haven't answered your question about the brain basis. So, okay, we got the genetic <laughs> risk. So I guess what we're honing in on, we, you and I, you know, think it's a real thing for, for one thing. Uh, it's heritable, uh, there's genetic components, but the brain basis, there are some specific differences. One of those is the head of the caudate nucleus. The head of the caudate is associated with learning and reinforcement. It's volumetrically smaller than people of ADHD. Another difference in children. So just yeah, to jump, jump on that. So that's interesting, right? Because people with ADHD, one of our one of our traits, right, is that it we just don't learn from our mistakes quickly enough, right? Like it takes us we have to right. keep learning the same lesson over and over and over again. Yes. And so that reduced size matches perfectly with that. And it does. And I'm always tempted to make these connections. Uh -huh. And I'm with you. I'm with you 97%. But uh, we'll be cautious not to. We don't know that these differences cause the behavioral symptoms or expressions. What you just said is makes sense to me. But we For don't example, know yet. We don't know yet. Yeah. For example, the next one. We're going to do the same thing. I'll tell you the difference, and then we'll say we don't know if that's okay. Gives rise to the well, difference. I'll but see that, where that matches to ADHD for me, whatever you describe, and then you can tell me to yeah. slow down. Yeah, <laughs> it may not. So the difference is cortical thickness. So around the edge of your brain, you have a bark or a cortex, and the thickness of that differs um, from place to place, and it also differs from group to group. So when you compare children with and without ADHD, there are regions of the brain that are thinner in children with ADHD. 
Now, interestingly, that difference washes out by adulthood. We know that 60% of kids with ADHD will still meet criteria as adults. So does that washout determine the 40% that don't still have it? Is cortical thickness or thinness related to symptoms? There's some evidence, for example, that autistic spectrum features are related to regions of the brain that are actually thicker than neurotypical folks. And, you know, cortical thinning, it sounds so, so bad. The truth is, starting at age 30, your brain does start to shrink and thin, and it gets rid of redundant tissue. So I don't know if that cortical thinning relates to childhood symptoms. I will simply say, the head of the caudate nucleus, cortical thinning, these are all features that make me say, I believe ADHD is a real thing. We know the superficial behavioral differences, but it turns out that there are actual brain-based differences. And, and that cortical thickness and the washout matches with ADHD being a developmental disorder. That's right. And that's right. crucial to that, that 10-second, what is ADHD in the grocery store, that conversation. There should be some distinction between ADHD and a dozen other conditions that can also cause inattention and distractibility. ADHD is a specific way of demonstrating significant inattention and distractibility and restlessness. It's neurodevelopmental. Right. Because there are, there are a number of lookalikes, right? Like even yep. anything from trauma, which is probably one of the ones that gets misdiagnosed most often, at least yep. in the groups that I tend to work with. Yep. Um, trauma, bipolar disorder can be a lookalike. Just not getting enough sleep. Like it oh, it can yeah. be that straightforward sometimes. Fibromyalgia. Yep. Uh, traumatic brain injury. Depression. There's a number of conditions that can, you know, if you look at it, ADHD symptom checklist, there's a number of conditions that can cause you to circle, you know, six or more of those symptoms. So ADHD right. is one of those. And I'm, I'm interested in the notion, the idea that kids grow out of it, right? That, yeah. that 30-ish percent yeah. that no longer exhibit ADHD traits as they age. Yeah. I push back so hard against that because I really, my view of it is they figured out compensatory strategies and if we decide that this kid who is 18, 19 years old, or even 25 is doing fine, probably doesn't have ADHD anymore. And you let your guard down. Yep. All it takes is one major life change for all of that to get nuked. Yep. So just assume you still have it, even if you're 40 and, and do what you're doing. And if it, everything's working great, yep. but if you're going to have a major life change, just kind of let your spider sense tingle and be ready for the potential that things might go off the rails. And it might be a good, that might be a good time to do, to, to reconnect with your coach. A li- major life change like what? What are you thinking? I've got some in mind, but I'm interested in what you're describing. Promotion at work, job yep. loss, yep. a kid, getting married, moving, any of those things, loss of a parent. Yes. Yep. So when you see that coming, to the extent you see these changes coming, check in with your support team, your coach, reconsider going back to the things that worked for you in the past, whether it was medication, gym, diet, supplements. Right. And, and for kids, cause kids have major life changes too. You have to, mm. you have to look at that as well and, and look at it from their perspective. Right. My right. guys just went through a major life change. School started again. Yes. You know, I, my son was up crying last night. Yes. I don't blame because, it. Yeah. And, and his reasoning, I'm sure it was more significant than what he told me. Um, but I didn't want to put thoughts in his head. So he was talking to me about how on the first day of school, he signed his name the way he thought his teacher want, would want him to sign it, yes. but he didn't really want to sign it like that anymore. He wanted wow. to sign it the right way. Yeah. Um, now mix into that, they're identical twins and they're in different classes this year after being in the same class last year. So that's another layer that he's not talking about. Yeah. And his teacher has a wandering eye. So he thinks she looks like a zombie, which is climbing oh, into no. his head and causing oh, no. all kinds of stuff. Wow. Um, yeah. But it's, so, but that's a major life change for a kid is all of a sudden you have a new teacher you have to worry about. And what are you going to do with that? And you have new expectations and, and new assignments that you've never done before. And you, have a, to have, you have to have a real cross-cultural perspective because at this point in my life, I'm so good at managing people who have wandering eyes. I'm so good at the whole identity of like, am I going to sign my name this way or make it lean left? Or I've kind of resolved all that. It seems quaint for that to be a big deal. But if you look at it through his eyes, it is a big deal. And what's a big deal for me might not rock your world. Right. So imagine a, a client who, who comes to you and he's in his late thirties and he says, you know, Brandon, I think I have ADHD. And you're thinking, yeah, I thought that in the waiting room. I mean, I, 
how are we just now asking this question? And you get his backstory. He probably had ADHD his whole life. It probably didn't just emerge. Uh, his story is he's super bright, and he was able to skate through high school just basically by showing up to the lectures because his parents didn't let him skip school. He never did homework, um, but he was able just to do well enough on his tests just because he, he soaked things up. Now, he didn't get into his first college of choice because he didn't really keep his grades up in high school. He didn't get into a second college of choice because he misplaced the application. So he went to his third choice college, and he did pretty well the first couple of years. Again, just kind of skating by. It was kind of a repeat of high school. But by his junior year, when he had to start doing courses in his major, which was business and finance, he found that it actually took some study skills that he didn't have, and he wasn't making good grades. He went ahead and dropped out of school. But by that time, he'd already met a buddy who had a business idea. Now, this was back when iPhones were new, and their business idea was to develop an iPhone case which on the back featured a guy or a girl, your choice, in a swimsuit. And as the battery heated up, the swimsuit would disappear. <laughs> and so he sold these for $10 a pop in kiosks across the country, malls, shopping centers. Um, and he made so much money that he actually hired somebody to help him with the details. And he enjoyed that so much because he loved just doing sales and he didn't like the details and the paperwork. He asked this part-time assistant, he said, I'd like to dump a whole nother bunch of stuff on your plate. How do you feel about that? And she's like, if you pay me. So he dumped more stuff on her plate and he just focused on what he's good at. He stopped doing any of his taxes or payroll. He'd let somebody else handle all of that. Well, he met somebody wonderful who thought he was hilarious and adventurous and brave and spontaneous. She thought that he notices things that she misses. She's kind of rigid and anxious and type A and has a lot of good executive functioning, but she's not too brave. And they were a perfect couple. And so they actually got married and she ran the house and got the bills paid and made sure that the old milk got tossed out and made sure he ate well and didn't drink too much. And so his home life was going super. His health was great. He, his business was going great. He was just focusing on what he was good at. Well, around that time, a company overseas started manufacturing these iPhone cases for 79 cents. They undercut him. His business began to decline. He argued with his business partner. They sort of uh, broke up their business relationship. He um, began drinking more heavily, was being grouchy and unpleasant. Uh, he and his wife couldn't work it out. He actually moved out. By the time you meet him, he's living in his cousin's basement, trying to take care of this boring job um, at a photocopy center, and he's just really upset. And perhaps what happened was, with the right job and the right partner and the right lifestyle, he almost looked like he didn't have ADHD but take away those supports, the great job, the great partner, the great nutrition, then he suddenly looks really symptomatic again. So here's somebody who maybe when we evaluated him at age six and we did a checklist with his mom, he met criteria. And then at age 25, people would have said, what's the problem? He went to some college. He's got a great business, a great family. He doesn't have functional impairment in two or more domains. By the time you see him, he's got functional impairment in multiple domains. So, mm -hmm. This is kind of to follow up on what you said about the kids who don't seem to have it as an adult. I bet we could set up a scenario that would support them at their best. And I bet if we were evil, we could set up a scenario that would prove that in fact, they still have this brain style. And hopefully what we're thinking as we listen to this is, hmm, how can I set up my lifestyle so that my home life and my business life and my car and my details are being managed and I can focus on what I'm really rip-roaring good at. Right. And also how when we're parents, right, one, we want to set that up for ourselves, but we also want to look at our kids and say, what systems can I put in place for my kids so that they're doing the things they need to do in school and they're doing yep. the things they need to do at home? Yep. And a lot of parents nail that down. But what sometimes happens is they wind up doing a lot of that support. And so, and they have trouble letting go as the kid grows up with, okay, now he's going to college, but you've been doing his laundry and you've been helping to make sure he gets his homework done. And, yep. and you've been encouraging him to clean his room and all of these things. He doesn't really have those skills. Yes. So, so one of the things that, that also needs to be in that thought process of what can we do is also what skills can we build in our kid mm. to help them be successful? Cause I, I, a really smart guy, I know his name, his name's David um, uses the phrase that it's, about raising a healthy, well-adjusted 26-year-old. Oh, yes. Right? It's not about, it's not about eighth yeah. grade. It's not about senior year right. in high school. It's not about third grade. Right. It's about that healthy, well-adjusted 26-year-old. And we keeping that long-term perspective and what skills do they need to have when they're 26 and how can we work backwards 
Yep. And at eight years old, which is where my guys are, what skills can I be investing in them now so that later on they'll be okay? And those, and those skills are hard to put into a kid with ADHD. What skills are you thinking of? Like you look at your kids now at, at age eight and you're kind of squinting your eyes and you're thinking, okay, imagine he's 26. And before he leaves home, I want him to have this short list of skills. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking of? Doing chores and understanding the importance of just keeping your house clean and okay. how to break that down into small chunks. Mm -hmm. So we've got a chore chart that we have and it's about to get updated because it's a new school year. So we tend to update stuff. So that's, that's one component. Um, this year we've also started having them make their own lunches in as far as they can. There's still some stuff that I have to do. I'm cutting the yeah. apple and that kind of stuff. Yep. But, and to do that, I've got a checklist that I made. It's like, here's what you need to have, right? You need to have a drink for lunch. You need to have a drink for snack for lunch. You need to have a protein and a carbohydrate and a plant because breaking fruits and vegetables up is too much of a battle. So I just say yeah, plant. A plant. <laughs> and then you need to have something else that's not super sugary. Like it's got to be a extra bonus, low sugar something. And then a snack of some sort. Chores, chunking big tasks, um, prepping lunches. I'm impressed that they're participating in the lunch thing at their age. That's good. Yeah. Well, it, I'm making the sandwiches. That's going to change as the year progresses because um, mm -hmm. they can spread peanut butter on a, on a piece of bread and they usually yep. do, but the, the speed at which we need to make lunches in the evenings, it's just easier if I do it. Yep. Um, but that'll change as they get better at making sandwiches. Brandon, um, while ago you used the word systems, you said something about parents having systems to support kids with ADHD. What, what kind of systems are you thinking? A lot of it's just developing patterns, right? Like every day at six o'clock, we're doing homework, right? Yep. Like my wife is in grad school. I've got all kinds of stuff that I need to do. My boys are going to have homework. So at six o'clock, the plan is that we're all going to sit down as a family. We started doing it yesterday. Um, so if we all sit down as a family and we're all doing sort of homework, something that looks like homework, even if it's not actually homework, that's instilling in the boys the importance of that. Okay. And it's doing it in a systemized way because it's got a regular time that it happens and it's got a regular slot. It's going to start at six o'clock and end at 645 or whatever. And if they're done with their homework, well, then they can pick up a book and read. They can ask me to go over flashcards for math facts with them or whatever is appropriate. What that does is it instills in them the importance of setting time aside mm. to grow and to learn and to do things that are boring and important. Yes. Um, huh. um, that sounds like, what some people call a bright line rule and bright line rule is a legal term and it has to do with just a non-negotiable legal guideline. So when I meet kids in my office, I ask them, when's your bedtime? And I say, when do you start homework? And I don't really care what the answer is, but I want the answer to be a number. I don't want to hear, Oh, daddy and I renegotiate that one every day <laughs> because it's uh, a lot of stress. It's a lot of work. It's not pleasant. What I'd rather hear is I start my homework at 4.30, except Thursdays. That's 5.30 because I have some lessons in the afternoon. Or I, I, go, to, I go to bed at uh, 8.30, but in the summer it's 9. Uh, I want to hear a number. and The number is up to the parent, but what I don't want to hear is that we renegotiate. These are things that happen every single day. And this whole bright line rules, the value of that is based on this concept in the literature called willpower depletion. The idea is that you wake up in the morning with a certain amount of willpower. We think that it's glucose. And they've tried studies where you get people jelly beans to see if you can improve their willpower. And it does, in the laboratory, it does help a bit. But it doesn't seem to really compensate for what's happening. You can't really supplement this willpower bank with jelly beans. It seems to be that it depletes over the course of the day. So rather than trying to figure out how to refill that tank. What I'd rather do is support my clients in limiting the number of choices they make. So if you always have homework at 6 p.m., then you don't have to spend any time asking horrible questions like, do I feel like doing homework? You'll never feel like getting a root canal. You just put it on the calendar and you treat it as a bright line rule. Many kids will not often feel like doing homework, but if it's a rule at six o'clock, then we don't negotiate that. As we see six o'clock approaching, it's a bright line rule. Um, Mark Zuckerberg says he only wears gray t-shirts and hoodies because he doesn't want to make that choice in the morning. I got so excited about that a few years ago that I got rid of all my clothes and I got several pair of these 
dark Levi's kind of stretchy jeans and some Brooks Brothers shirts. And I wear that with a blue jacket. You know, nobody says to me, David, you wear the same thing every day. I think that, you know, you may, you may not be ready to make such a severe sartorial decision, but that's one of the things I do to reduce the number of choices I have to make. Having macaroni and cheese on Monday and soup on Tuesday, sort of having rules about when you have meals is another way of having a bright line rule. A simple bright line rule that every house can have is the launching pad, yep. which is a region of the house near the front door. It could be part of your kitchen countertop. It could be a boot tray with a couple of hooks on the wall. It could be your mudroom. But the point is, the rule, you check the launching pad before you leave the house. And that's where the kids will have their signed permission slips and their lunch bags. That's where you'll have weather-appropriate gear, gym bag, the, the bag of materials you're going to use for that day. So anything you can do to reduce choosing. And I had this conversation with a client last night. She said, this sounds horrible. My whole life's going to be scheduled and wrote. And, you know, the truth is, and, you know, and you have kids, like, there's always going to be exciting, like somebody's going to barf or a dog will get out, <laughs> or, you know, the, the TV show you want to watch is preempted. You know, there's always exciting, or your laptop will crash. So, and, and, you know, if you feel like this is too rigid, then make sure you schedule in some time just to be spontaneous. But And there's, and there's something hiding in there, right, that's important for ADHD. And that's the role of dopamine and yeah. how we want yeah. that because we don't get enough. Yeah. And what the Bright Line rule does is at least when you're talking about families, right? When, cause our boys know at six o'clock, there's no more screen time. It's over. It's done. And if they're watching a show and it's got five minutes left, then we'll finish the show. But they always ask as soon as they, as soon as the alarm goes off at six o'clock and the alarm goes off at six, cause I'll forget, I'll lose track of time. I need that yeah. reminder. Right. But what the bright line rule avoids is conflict. There's nothing to argue about. We had that argument like, two years ago at this point, it's over yeah. and done and it's all yeah. settled. Yes. But arguments are full of dopamine. Yeah. So people, wow, with, ADHD, yeah. people with ADHD yeah. want those arguments. Yeah. So part of what your client might've been looking at was it's just yeah. not going to be as exciting. I actually yeah. enjoy it. All of that negotiation for me is full of dopamine yeah. and I get wow. something out of that. Yes. So what's, what's your solution to that? What can you offer? Cause I don't want to take something fun away from somebody. What's, how do you? I, I, what I point out is that arguing is full of dopamine, whether or not it is fun, right? Like that argument that you uh -huh. have every day about whether or not you're going to turn off the iPad is destructive to your relationship with the person who you're arguing with. All right. So even though it's full of dopamine and it's very engaging, it's not serving you in the long run. It's a very yeah. short term gain. Yeah. 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 So establishing a bright line rule around the iPad. Yes. That's going to end that arguing, even if it's going to make it worse in the short term, but it'll end it in the long term is a benefit. It's going to wind up helping out later. Like my kids, if it's a random Wednesday and I'm like, you know what, go ahead and use your iPad. I'm the greatest dad in the world because they're only allowed to use it on Friday evenings until six o'clock and then Saturday and Sunday. All so right. if I suddenly let them use it in the middle of the week, they're, they love me to death. And I, all I did was like, let them use an iPad. But there's parents out there who will get a battle if they say to their kid that they can't use it on a Wednesday because they haven't established those bright line rules. Right. And um, I think a, from my observation, a common discipline model is response cost. That's where you have nonstop access to all the goodies of the developed world. And then we take them away from you if you're naughty, which makes the parent the bad guy. It makes the kid mad. I kind of like to turn that around on its ear. And what if, for example, on the Massachusetts Turnpike, what if the troopers stopped pulling people over and doing response costs, saying, hey, you were going too fast, so you've got to pay the government this money. And you're like, oh, man. What if instead of doing that, they randomly pulled people over who were driving the speed limit and gave them a coupon for Starbucks? Like, what if they reinforced the behavior that they wanted. That's kind of the model I like to work from is if you have a kid with ADHD, knock two or three years off her chronological age because executive functions will be delayed. If you have a 12 year old say, okay, what would I expect of a 10 year old? That short list of skills she's going to need when she's 26. What is she ready to do now? Come to the dinner table the first time she's called, flush the toilet every time, what skill? And then explain that to her. We expect you to be able to get through your morning routine with two, fewer than three cues, or we expect you to start your homework independently by 4.30.
describe your behavior and then say, and when you do that, there'll be this ticket like uh, carnival tickets from the party store. You'll get this ticket that will be good for extra screen time, extra money on your allowance, whatever your thing is. And then if you don't do it, if it's 4.35 and you haven't started your homework, I'll, I'll help you start your homework. There won't be a ticket, but you're either going to get support or reinforcement. That way, the parent is a good guy and the kid is learning a skill and you're not taking things away. This does mean, however, that you can't have, you can't start with unlimited screen time and screens in the bedroom. It has to be because I'm an awesome dad. You get 15 minutes of screen time every day. Oh, and you can earn up to two and a half hours. Right. But even if you're horrible and you thump boogers on us, you still get 15 minutes every day. And the other component for that is to be very specific about what earns those tickets. Yeah. Right. Because it's not easy to spot the green lights. Yes. Right? Red lights are easy. You stop yeah. and you know it's there because it disrupts yeah. things. And the, the ADHD behaviors disrupt stuff. Yes. Green lights are really hard to count because you just drive right through them and you don't notice it happened. Yeah. So when your kid is doing everything right, it's hard to notice that. Even if it's amazing, even if it's so far beyond how great they usually are, it's still difficult to notice. Yeah. So setting yeah. some parameters around, like, I only had to ask you twice to get the morning routine nailed down. You get a ticket because I've defined it as three or less um, reminders gets you the ticket. That has to happen in order to keep the parent focused on what they want. I think um, you're speaking to what's really hard about this model. I mean, right. it sounds really good and positive. And let's say your kid only does something horrible once an hour. That means you only have to notice once an hour. But if you're going to flip it around and say, I'm, I'm going to notice when he's doing age-appropriate things, good executive function. That means I've got to constantly be noticing, which means I can't be in my own head thinking about work or on my phone or whatever. I've got to be, it's a lot of work for the, the mm -hmm. parent or the teacher, or the coach doing this. Yeah. And that's why you want to set those parameters, right? Like that, that morning routine thing is a really solid example because it happens in a limited time frame, mm, yep. and the requirements for it are very clearly defined. It's th only three reminders. If it's less than that, you're good. And because you've got those reminders mixed in, you're still going to notice stuff. It kind of keeps you tuned in. And also, the morning routine probably affects how quickly you get to work. Right. So you, yep. you're inherently motivated to be tuned in. As a parent. As a parent. Yep. Now... Let's go back to our conversation, um, the original question, how would we define ADHD in 10 seconds? One thing that I, I think is worth mentioning is that there are two clusters of symptoms under the umbrella of ADHD. One cluster is observable. It's hyperactivity, restlessness, out of seat, interrupting people in conversation. The other cluster is kind of invisible. It's distractibility. It's either hyper-focus or difficulty focusing. It's inattention. Now, the, the subtype we call ADHD combined type features both of those, hyperactivity and inattention. And then the subtype we call ADHD inattentive type, which we used to call ADD. A lot of people still do call it ADD. That's um, a little bit tricky. I don't think it's tricky for you, but it may be tricky for someone who's brand new to this concept because it's not Dennis the Menace. It's not Bart Simpson. It is possibly somebody in a class of 28 kids. It could be the one who's in the back, kind of bubbling along, making C's. What? She's an A student, but she's making C's and not bothering anybody, staring out the window. You might not notice her until November when you realize, wow, she's kind of underperforming. In fact, these folks can fly under the radar until they're in their 20s. So I think it's um, useful to point out that ADHD doesn't necessarily involve a cartoonish type of loud, interrupting, rambunctious presentation. Yeah, some, it's not always Bart Simpson, right? It's not always Dennis the Menace. Sometimes it's the kid who's just not totally tuned in. And, or sluggish. And, or, right, or sluggish, or who tends to go jumping from one thing to the, to the next, right? The kid who, like you say, hey, I need you to take your dishes to the sink, and they walk over to the table, <laughs> spot a book, and start reading the book because yeah. they just shifted immediately and got distracted by the book. But they don't cause trouble. They just are always sort of doing something that's next to the thing they're supposed to be doing. What's interesting is that about 60% of combined type will respond to the first trial of stimulant medication, whereas about 40% of the inattentive type respond to the first trial of stimulant medication. What that suggests to me is that those are really different numbers. In fact, Dr. Russ Barkley believes that the inattentive type is so different that it should possibly be under a different umbrella. So if we have this podcast again in 2030, 
we could be looking at a model where we call all of it executive dysfunction, and then we have ADD, we have hyperactive type, we have sluggish cognitive tempo, we maybe have some other variants that we haven't really identified yet. We're talking about ADHD, we both believe in it, but I don't think either you or I think that we've named it very well, even just the concept no. of attention deficit. You know, I don't think we believe that's the problem. No, because it's, it's an inability to regulate your attention. It's not a lack of attention. Right. Like if, I'm, if you and I are talking and I'm looking at my phone and not really paying attention to you, that doesn't mean I have a problem, like a, a lack of attention. It means that my attention is just not aimed where it should be. It should be aimed at you, and instead I'm staring at my phone. I mean, if, you, if you're out of the coma, you get all the attention you're ever going to get. But whether it's hyper-focus or off-task, it's regulating that attention. You know, determining what to give our attention to, and then if it's kind of dull, sustaining that attention. And then if something more interesting pops up, the other day I'm in my office with a little boy and I'm, I'm the most boring thing in the room. I'm trying to do an evaluation with him. <laughs> and what's more interesting than me is my testing table. It slides around on wheels. It has a lever that goes up and down. Of course, he discovered the lever. And then he discovered that he could put his entire body on it and basically surf. <laughs> he's, That's he's awesome. Still, he's still answering my questions. I'm doing a little bit of get back in your chair. But if I can get what I need from him, I'm letting him just keep moving. But at that point, between me and the table, the table was a more interesting thing. His mom joined us for a conversation. It was difficult to talk with mom because he was skating around on the table. And then her mom did that thing, which I'm secretly glad she did it, although I don't recommend it. She pulled out her phone and gave her phone to him. And his eyes got as big as silver dollars. And immediately the phone became the more interesting thing, you know, when it was a choice between me and the rolly table, the table won. When it was a choice between the phone and anything else, the phone won. The reason I say, you know, I don't necessarily want to support that is by the time he's 18 or 26, I want him to be able to focus on a boring thing, even when there's a compelling thing around him. He's going to be living in a world of phones and laptops and Google Glass and whatever comes next. And in terms of self-regulation, just giving him a phone helped him be quiet for us but we're not teaching him self-regulation. In that moment, we were not helping support him to tolerate boredom and to self-regulate. Right. Yeah, when my guys tell me they're bored, I always say good. Tell me about that. What do you mean? So they'll go, Dad, I'm bored. I shouldn't say always because I'm sure I miss it sometimes, but yeah. for the most part, I say, I go, good. You need to learn how to do that. <laughs> and they're like, what? what? <laughs> like, yeah, you're going to be bored, man. You got to learn how to handle that. And what kind of strategies do you have? And what could you do right now that would help you with being bored? Um, and dep depending on the situation, sometimes it's I can go grab a book or sometimes it's nothing. I'm just, yeah. we're standing in line at, at Target. Like there's nothing I can do right now. I want to interview those guys when they're about 12 or 13 and say, what was it like growing up with a dad who did this for work? You know, because <laughs> I think what many parents would say, oh, yeah, mommy, I'm bored. The parent would say, they'll start giving you ideas. And then of course you would just shoot down the ideas. No. No. And what you're doing is you saying, good. Yeah. Cause yeah. Um, I routinely ask people, right, you know, raise your hand if you love your job. Some hands go up. And then I say, what percentage of your job that you love is super awful? And people give me numbers like 20%, sometimes 10%. The lowest number I get is 10%. The people who love their jobs, 10% of it is awful and boring. And right now, your sons can't do that. I tried to offer them a job going down wet water slides because that's fun. But then they said, does that mean I have to go up the ladder? Like, oh, right, there's that <laughs> yucky part. So you want them before they leave home. Hopefully their lives will be filled with wonderful, thrilling, awesome things that set their dopamine on fire. But there will always be those activities and relationships that are boring. And you yep. and I have to regulate around that. Yeah, and, and that's, that's something I talk about with homework. This is the phrase I start using with my middle school and high school kids when we talk about homework and how they just don't like it and, or even I, I already know how to do it. I don't understand why I have to do all this homework. Yes. And I always say to them, I'm like, the homework for you is if it's e easy and you can do it, then it's not about learning math. It's not about learning how to do algebra or long division. It's about learning how to do stuff that sucks mm -hmm. because throughout your life, you're going to have to do things that suck, whether it's mowing the lawn or filling out TPS reports or whatever it is. And this homework is you learning how to do that. At what age have you seen young people understand what you just said? Eighth grade. Uh -huh. Sometimes seventh, but usually eighth grade is the sweet spot. I usually don't even bring it up if they're not in eighth grade. All right. 
They've right. got to be, if I'm working with a family and with a seventh grader, they have to have the right vibe for me to say, you're learning how to do things that suck. The glassy look. Yeah. I don't want to wind up stepping the wrong way. But yeah. so for younger kids, I say, you're learning how to do things that are hard, which yeah. isn't really true. Like that's not the best term. The best term really is you're learning how to do things that suck stuff that just is maybe a little bit hard, but really isn't engaging and feels like it's an inconvenience and it's yes. just being thrust upon you by someone else and you don't really care. You have to learn how to do that stuff. You know, I'm thinking of my battery of tests when I do a neuropsychological evaluation with an adult or a child. Some of them are very interesting and then some of them are dull. In fact, some of them are designed to be dull. There's one instrument called the continuous performance test which is administered on a computer and you have to hit the space bar when you see a letter. The letters are coming at different intervals, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. It's a white letter on a black background. The test is basically how well can you do a simple task when there's no payoff, there's no interest, it's, it's dull. And by the way, you have to not hit the space bar if it's an X, so it's checking for impulsivity. And I've had people say, David, that test would have been so more interesting if there were music or color. And I'm like, I know, that's why they didn't include music or color. <laughs> One client said that the way she tolerated the test, there was a glare on the screen and she could see the reflection of her new painted fingernails and she was enjoying that and she was looking at her reflection of her fingernails on the screen. A kid last week refused to do it. He said, it's not showing me on the screen my results. I said, no, the software is counting your reaction time and counting how many letters you miss. He was irate that it didn't show his feedback on the screen. And of course, they didn't include that because that would be vaguely interesting. It would be competitive, but activate your dopamine. So somebody at some point designed a test, which is a perfect example of what we're describing. Can you do something when there's no immediate payoff? The only reason you're doing it is because the guy asked you to do it and you're, you're trying to be agreeable and pleasant. And I can think of a lot of relationships like that with extended family or supervisors or coworkers. It's not inherently interesting. April 15th, I sometimes wish, why don't we just do an honor system? Like instead of paying a bunch of taxes, you kind of pay what you want, but I don't get the option. So yeah, you and I have finally figured it out how to do, do you remember when you got it? Like how to do boring, yucky things? I don't remember when I got how to do them, but I remember because it wasn't that long ago when I got that that was important. Yeah. That being able to do those things was yeah. important and had value and that if you really like your job, then consider the boring stuff is what you're getting paid for. And the yeah. stuff that you like is what you're doing for free. <laughs> yeah. And then you're getting a lot more money for the boring stuff. Wow. Okay. Say that again. That is awesome. You're getting paid for the boring stuff, right? Yeah. Like, like I've listened to entertainers and stuff in, on podcasts and things. And they say, I don't get paid to act. I get paid to travel right? Like they don't get paid to do the thing that they like. The singing on stage is not what they get paid for. Right. What they get paid for is flying around the world and being away yeah. from their family. Yes. And showing so, up on time. And Right. Huh. And you can have that same perspective for an office job that you like most of it, but you really right. hate this part of it. Yes. Well, you're only getting paid for that part. You're not getting paid for the sales part. You're getting paid for the documentation of the sales. Wow. That's so good. So when somebody says that, Hey, uh, you know, if I won the lottery, there's parts of my job I would keep doing. There's parts of my job you wouldn't have to pay me. Like, okay, so you're not getting paid for that part. You're getting paid to do the 10% of your job that's awful. Like, now it's like, it's like you're making $800 an hour. Right. That's yeah. great. So what else do you think this, this, this person who, you know, you and I are thinking about somebody who said, what is ADHD? We're trying to give them a short answer. Mm -hmm. We've said it's brain-based. We said there's two subtypes. At this point, if they weren't interested, they would say, well, thanks, I've got to go. But if they were interested, what question, what do you think we've left unanswered? Well, we've talked about the types. We've talked about the age appropriateness and knocking off two or three years All right. um, for expectations around kids. We've talked about the importance of chunking. We've sort of danced around the edges of executive functioning without going yeah. explicitly into it, but I think we've come across that enough. We haven't talked about treatment. Is that a separate podcast? Probably. Yeah. Um, we, we, we mentioned sort of some strategies. We mentioned the medication side of things. Yep. We haven't mentioned mindfulness. Mm. So maybe we can wrap up with that. You know, that's a big um, one. It's huge. And I want to hear your take on it, but let me tell you where I am with that. Mm-hmm. 
for years, I have been a bland booster of mindfulness because if you're in mental health, it's been 24-7 mindfulness for the past 10 years. Everybody talks about it. And the kind of people who talk about it are the people that I tend to agree with on most things. Like we drive the same kind of cars. We, we're cross-country rather than downhill. It's all the same kind of people. that. And so for the past 10 years, when people bring up mindfulness, they say, oh, what do you think about mindfulness? I'm like, yeah, you should probably do that thing that I wasn't really listening. It's, yeah, <laughs> mindfulness. However, some things came together for me recently. I had been really thinking about neuroplasticity, the capacity for the brain, including the ADHD brain, to physically change with experience. So the idea that if you yell into a pillow when you're angry, you get better and better at yelling into a pillow when you're angry. If you learn to regulate affect, you get better and better at regulating affect. If you spend lots and lots of time on Farmville, you get better and better at Farmville. And if anybody's listening and old enough to remember Farmville, they're thinking, <laughs> I wish I had all that time back. Because in 2009, <laughs> I got really good at Farmville. And then in 2011, I got really good at Candy Crush. And literally, these things change your brain. If you learn a language or take up an instrument, you get, it changes your brain. So we're talking about two neurons in your brain that fire together the first time you try an activity. And because they fire together once, it's easier for them to fire together the second time. It's called long-term potentiation. Chemically easier to fire. You can't tell yet. It still feels really hard the second and third and fourth time you throw a dart or try to play the piano, but it's getting easier. With practice, you're literally you know, sprouting synapses and you are laying down tissue in the brain. So on functional imaging, after people learn to read Braille, you see the difference in their brain. The bit of the brain that supports fingertip sensation gets bigger. All right. So I've been excited about that. The, the fact that you can change your brain with practice. You can rewire your brain by practicing a thing. So that's the first piece. The second piece is I'm at a workshop, once again, talking about mindfulness. I've always talked about mindfulness at my workshops for about two minutes, just to go, oh, here's a thing that everybody talks about. And so we did a bit of mindfulness practice. And somebody, some attendee at the workshop said that when I bring my attention back to the breath, because the practice we're doing is just noticing your breath for one minute. She said, Every time I bring my attention back to the breath, and as she said that, she had her hand extended way out to the side. She said, as I bring my attention back to the breath, and in that moment, she brings her hand back to midline, sort of back to her chest. And when I saw her do that, it occurred to me, yes, that's it. Bringing your attention back to the breath is a thing. Just as surely as opening a soda or throwing a dart is a thing. Now, I can't necessarily tell you how I do it. Um, for some people, it's quick self-talk. They go, oh, back to the breath. For other people, it's visual. They realize, oh, I'm visualizing my workout, my dinner plans. Let me visualize my breath. For other people, it's a body-based sense of I feel like I'm, I'm off. But the point is there's a thing each of us does to bring our attention back to the breath. So if you practice mindful breathing for a minute, you just set a timer and you just focus on your breath, and you notice every time you get distracted, you come back to the breath. Some of you will have to do it 30 times. Some of you will bring your attention back to the breath five times. And it occurs to me that doing 30 push-ups with really good form is a better workout than doing five push-ups. And practicing bringing our attention back to the breath over and over changes your brain. If you don't believe me, look up Sarah Lazar, L-A-Z-A-R. She and her colleagues at Harvard are busy studying the brains of long-term meditators. They physically look different. It changes your brain. What you just described is very close to how I explain mindfulness meditation, even to the arm part. That's how close it is. So when I describe mindfulness meditation, I talk about how most people think that when you meditate, it's just your mind is blank and that's all that happens, right? right. But that's completely not true. Yes. Meditation is hard. It's work. You have yeah. to do it. And so yeah. I start, when I say that, I bring my hand to the midline, right? And I say, it's really hard to meditate and to keep that focus because eventually your focus is going to wander. Your mind is just going to wander. And when I start to saying wander, my arm drifts slowly down and out to my side. Instead of going up, I go down. And then I say, and what you need to do is when your mind is wandered, you have to bring it back. And then I bring my arm back up to my chest. Wow, yes. And then I equate it to doing a curl. Because, oh. yeah, so that's why my arm does that. It basically makes a curling motion. Yes. And then I equate it to doing a curl because the, all of the benefit of doing a curl comes from bringing the weight up. 
and yep. moving it. And yep. in mindfulness meditation, all of the benefit comes from bringing your attention back to your breath or whatever your focus is. Yeah. I use the breath too because it's always there and easy to get. But that's where the benefit comes from. Being able to sit there forever with a blank mind is great, but you're not necessarily rewiring anything. There's no neuroplasticity happening. You're just at baseline. Right. So bringing it back is where all the benefit comes from. So being bad at meditation is good for self-regulation. Yes. If you have ADHD, you're yeah. going to be bad at it. And just to be clear to our listeners, there are many clinical applications of mindfulness. So that you and I are talking about one way to benefit from mindfulness. And this is the way. So when somebody says, David, I, I tried the mindfulness practice and it was very relaxing. I'm like, I don't care. This isn't to relax. If somebody says, oh, David, I tried the mindfulness and it made me so anxious. I'm like, good. You should be anxious. Do you know how many really bright people out there are getting wealthy on the fact that we don't notice how addicted and distracted we are? They don't want us to stop. The reason that Instagram loads in three seconds and LinkedIn takes about 12 seconds to load is that those are two different markets. The market for Instagram will not wait two seconds. So I want you just to take a minute not feeding that. And if it makes you anxious, good. Like that's what's going on beneath the surface. When you're stopping and not attending to all the distractions and you get anxious, that means that's, that's the noise that you would hear in your car if you ever turned your radio down. Right. Yeah. And it means that it means that you're starting to see where you need to go, right? Like you're starting to mm -hmm. see the, oh, okay, this is causing me some anxiety. Yeah. That means something. There's maybe something going on that you're not aware of. There, maybe you're just overstimulated and there's too much information coming in at you, but something's going on there and, and if you need you, to figure it out. If you tolerate that, that mild pain, if you tolerate it and just keep practicing, you will eventually change your brain. You'll be able to tolerate it. And you may never fall in love with it, but you will be able to do the thing that we're calling tolerate it. And then you'll begin to notice that in your conversations, in your presence at a movie or listening to a lecture or driving a car, you'll notice subtle qualities of, I'm going to stop saying attention like it's a thing and call it attending. You'll notice that your attending begins to, to change. That's yeah, exciting. That is. And, and sounds like a good place to stop too. Yeah. Um, so we'll wrap up here. Thank you very much for being on. I appreciate Man, it. Man, I am taking some notes here. Uh, I'm going to think about some things, do some more reading. And uh, once again, I always have great conversations with you and spark off you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.